Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. This episode of It's a Customer's World podcast is the continuation of my talk with the Kevin Kelly. If you missed part one, please go back and listen as we covered his background and macro approach to design. As a refresher, Kevin is the co-founding partner and principal of Shook Kelly, a strategy and design firm. I've followed Kevin's work for over 20 years, and I don't think there's a progressive retail format out there that doesn't have Kevin's fingerprints on it in some form or fashion. In this episode, we'll learn from Kevin about the future of store design based on trends and customer choice, macro versus micro stores, and the need to innovate to meet the needs of today's customer. Uh, for the unwashed that are living in the grocery space and, and dealing with that, one of the hypotheses I have, which is probably fairly obvious, is that customers have now gotten pretty familiar and okay with buying a lot of the essential categories that they might have found in a in a larger grocery superstore type thing, whether it's laundry, paper towels, they can buy those essential okay. categories online. Yeah. And a lot of the, um, so, so the question is, if you go to the store and you're looking at fresh, why would you want to go down an aisle that you can buy online? And a lot of these essential categories, whether it's laundry or shampoo or whatever, you know, they, they rely on discovery in the physical shelf in order to bring new to the market. And I've seen most, I think would probably agree with me on this one, is that they're, they tend to be overranged and underchoiced. Yep. And, and when you can get that category online and you've now become used to that, the only reason to go into a store that into those categories in a store is going to be for discovery or the browsing. Because let's face it, online is not easy to browse. And yet, if you go into an environment that is just one facing after another of tiny variations and it's really difficult to understand choice, I think that's gonna be a real problem. And it, it'll probably lead to more macro space changes which it's been a lot of micro space changes over the last 10 years. You might do a macro space change on a remodel but, or a new prototype. But, but I think the, the, the disruption in space utilization in the store level is going to be uh, fairly significant. Um, and I, I also think that for those physical categories, especially in central areas, to make sense, they're going to need to be designed differently. They're going to need to be designed to help customers with choice and really communicate choice so that you can understand that. I mean, stand in front of most aisles and try to figure out what's the best value for me. Uh, it's you need, you know, two calculators. You can't you can't even figure it out. But but what I would suggest and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is that I think a lot of categories can add value in the physical space and be shopped if they maybe pulled back a bit from just ranging and started thinking about how do you communicate choice at shelf 
and make those choices clear so the customer can have something that sounds more interesting and, and viable. And, and those are categories that typically like no one wants to bother with the soda aisle or the laundry aisle or, you know, cause they're just, you know, bereft of any type of uh, semiotics that makes sense. And a lot of those are just overranged, but for them to survive and get physical space, they're gonna have to be thought of from a browsing mindset. And I'd, I'd love to know how, like, what, what would you say to someone that's in that category about how to rethink what is what do customers want when they're browsing versus just yeah. a task mindset that they can now go do online? Yeah, you, you, it's a great theory, by the way, and, and you're right on, in my opinion, with it. Um, we work for both retailers and CPG companies. So we work a lot in micro aisle sections and yeah. we work a lot and for the overall and it's amazing the differences. That's a whole another discussion in terms of thinking. But um, the, the thing that is really interesting to me is um, how grocery has accepted this chassis for 50 years of center store and perimeter. And what we really did is the, the history of grocery was built during an era when there was more demand than supply. If you really think about it, the country did not have enough grocery stores. The number one complaint that consumers had was, I love living out here, but it takes me 40 minutes to get to a grocery store. So everybody wanted a grocery store, developers and banks, and helped them build those grocery stores. But aisles are not a place human beings want to be physically. If we just talk behaviorally, um, no human being likes to be in a corridor, an alley, um, and so the question is, why do they exist that way? Well, they exist that way at the convenience of the retailer. So when the retailer had plenty of demand and they were the only game in the world, they really could say, look, this is our inventory and we call it a lumberyard mentality. This is our lumberyard. And if you don't know what, uh, uh, you know, giant sheets of drywall, uh, drywall are, then you just won't know how to shop it. And we didn't really help the customer. And we really did all our pack out logistics at the convenience of the retailer. But now, and we've been this way for over 10 years, now we're in a situation where there's a grocery store everywhere. We're over-grocerieed in many markets, and we have more supply than we have demand, and customers get to say where they want to go and who they're going to go to. And so they're looking for places that can really uh, solve the, those kind of issues that where they get more joy and less work. And walking down an aisle in a, in a center store doesn't really work because it's a sea of commodity. It's a sea of chaos. And our brain physically shuts down when we see too much information. It's a paradox of choice. Yeah. Um, and there's no visual anchors. There's no visual hierarchy. Uh, it's just visual noise. And what we're really trying to find in a grocery store as human beings are solutions, ideas, and inspirations on how to live better. And when I go down the condiments aisle, I don't see any solutions, inspirations, or ideas on how to live together. I see 30 relishes, but I don't even know which one to pick, particularly right. the younger generations. Right. So, so what we're doing is we're trying to get rid of aisles. You know, I, I, I audaciously have been telling my clients that for 15 years, we're going to get rid of as many aisles as we can. We did an HBC in health and beauty. We got rid of the aisles. We've been doing it in cookies. We're doing it in coffee. We're trying to get rid of all those areas. And uh, there's a lot of CPG companies that like it because it's the only place where they can put their entire portfolio out. I mean, uh, if you, 100%. No, 100%. Yeah. Now, on that point, yeah. though, 
Um, Kevin, I, I love what you're saying, and you are you yeah. are definitely being audacious right now. Okay, that you're yeah. definitely being audacious, saying get rid of vials. But yeah. but how much of this could the CPG? Okay, QR codes, right? We've seen the pivot. Now all of a sudden, c consumers can use QR codes. I've been preaching QR codes as a better mm -hmm. way to interact because of you know the screens yeah. in your hand uh, for for eight years, and so. But I'm not seeing any packaging changes by CPG yet that yeah. recognize what's right. What's right there? The, you know, like yeah. you seeing QR codes on packaging, just simple things like that, yeah. or you know, understanding that you could really win on choice if you rethink your packaging and assume for a second you're not going to get all retailers to fix the aisle problem. Yeah, I, I just think there's a lot more CPG can even do to to think about choice. Yeah, and I don't think CPG are the enemy. I think CPG, no, no. Uh, they, they, they kind of want to do it. I think the problem we've had is retailers and CPGs don't work together uh, close enough. I mean, I, I, I've been in business 30 years, have designed hundreds of prototypes that are groundbreaking and bold, and not a single one of those have I been able to invite a CPG company to sit at the table with us. And I've asked my retailers over and over, and they don't, they, they feel uncomfortable showing their secrets. And I'm like, look, our wagons are hitched. We need to find a way to work together. But th yeah. that's a big problem. And, and part of that is the sales mentality. But your QR code, you know, what I find is because people say, well, look, Amazon solved this problem of frictionless shopping. Why can't grocery do it? And this QR code, groceries known about this. They, they it, the technology exists. They want to do it. I think the problem grocery has is they don't have the capital, the R and D to do it like right. an Amazon has. And what we right. need are some entities to step up to pioneer that. And you know, the Amazon's to me their big opportunity is to license their frictionless shopping to everyone because that would help. And the same with the QR codes. I think we're going to have to really grocery can never fund it. They just don't have that kind of money. No, They're going to have to the, wait the for somebody. Are, yeah, the margins are too thin. But I do think that we're going to see a, a once in maybe 10-year event as an opportunity because so many interior aisle categories are now too baggy in space yep. that you're going to have to – and macro resets, as you know, is super expensive, capital yep. intensive. But if you don't, you're, it's going to look like a war zone. And uh, in a lot of these categories that have fundamentally shifted buying behavior online. Um, so I, 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 my opinion is we're on the verge of an era of creativity and ideas that's got a window to it as you think about, because the capital is going to have to come, it's going to have to be reinvested in, or the store experience is going to be really, really challenging when you're walking down, you know, people realize they don't need that many yogurt choices at like fundamentally half, um, yeah. what are you gonna do with the rest of that space? And you can't just yeah. fill it with cardboard. There's gotta be you know, thoughtful thinking about what's the whole macro. And I think we are in a macro, which for your kind of business is probably pretty good news. Uh, the problem I think though, it quite honestly is, I've seen quite a slowdown in retail, especially grocery on uh, proto developments. And yeah. so a lot of the protos have been stuck in time uh, because if you're not opening a lot of new stores and you're not really doing macro space redesign, why do you need so many protos, right? How, why, what are you really testing and learning? And I think of uh, those retailers that can get in front of this right now and be really thinking about store prototypes that think about space completely differently, now's the window to do it. Well, what's really, what's gonna precipitate, I think, 
part of this crisis is the the trend um, is going to be smaller stores, more frequent smaller stores, and that's coming out of center store. That's not coming out of perimeter. Right. And uh, and we have five different uh, chain prototypes for stores that are ten thousand square feet. You know, we're and we're going from forty five or sixty down to ten thousand square feet, and so there's going to be a massive level of editing going on. And uh, you know, I, I think that's going to really push that that crisis. And uh, I mean, you're right that. A lot of sales are going online for the things you have to schlep. Nobody wants to schlep, so they're they're just they're they're saying those things that are heavy, you bring them, and uh, the things I enjoy, which is perishables and discovery and enlightenment and learning, cooking, all those things are going to be a big part of it. And it, it, I would say another crisis that is happening because I work with a lot of CPG companies is that. Um, Ordering online, people shop by habit, but they don't experiment no matter what we right. do to them. And, 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 and there's something, I think, very human about the idea of when you're in a store, an in cap or an aisle bump out gets you. Um, when we videotape customers, it fascinates us to watch how many customers will see a product they didn't expect, not on their list. They'll pick it up, and we call it the what the heck purchase. Like, oh, what yeah. the heck? And they do a lot of what the heck purchases in a store enough to add, you know, five to fifteen dollars to the to the average checkout price. Fifteen would be extreme, so generally generally there. But what we're always looking at, we're like, well, if we could just add two bucks to twenty percent of the customers in a year, we're going to change your, we're going to revolutionize your numbers. They haven't been able to get that to work online uh, anywhere, right. according to my CPG clients. They're like, we just, and they run promos, they do everything, but it's just, there's something about the moment that becomes the what the heck. Um, we, we describe it sometimes like, do you need another green sweater for fall? And you go, I have plenty. But when you're walking down the street at a shopping center and you see that new shade of green, you're like, you know, maybe I'll buy that. And. I think that that speaks to something else you mentioned earlier about browsing that's really important. And that is what we call milling behavior and window shopping behavior. And that is the ideal state we try to keep customers in. And they enjoy it. They're not, they don't feel manipulated. They love to mill and browse. Well, on but that when point, we put them on the aisle, it's yeah. utilitarian. And, and, and Kelly, one of that points, one of the things I've seen is kind of an overlooked orphan idea is in-store sampling. You yes. know, Costco does it really well. But yep. because you're going to see, you know, this condensed skew space, smaller stores and, and, and the truth that in-store shopping tends to be where you're going to discover new. Um, but yet the in-store sampling programs are almost an afterthought. Um, you know, are you seeing anybody step back and think about that more strategically than, you know, Mabel on a table, you know, pushing out samples, <laughs> uh, but by something that they see it as more their core operation than something that is kind of on the side. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like we're just, you know, uh, jumping in the same hymn book, but we're really working on that particularly and have been working on it on really creating, we call them curation stations, the discovery zones, and they're these micro modules that we do on end caps, we do in other places. And what we're trying to address are the slow days and the busy days and flexibility. So we have these end caps that have 
they're kind of like a transformer when when a slow day they can be self-serve but on a busy day they turn into station so a little cart rolls out like a lemonade stand and allows you and what we're trying and, and not only are we doing that with big cpgs we're doing it with the retailers themselves so one of our brands in, in canada we have this thing called frank's fines and it's frank and frank's this uh, owner of the chain and he has these great curious ideas all over the world that he goes and we're like Let's, let's do displays of Frank's finds, but we're doing it, I'd say in a store, we try to do it at least six times. If we can get to 12, we'll do that. And what we find is customers love it. They really enjoy this like, wow, I never even tried apple cider like that. And it becomes this new thing. But what we see a lot of grocery stores that aren't very good at doing it is they sell products nobody wants. And they're, they're, they're sampling products rather the manufacturer's trying to get people to buy, but it just doesn't yeah, have that. And it's probably uh-huh. been, maybe it's been hyped as a new item. It's getting funding. It's providing co-op funds. You know, you name all those reasons why that happens. But uh, yeah. if you have any that's public, you could share. I'd love to put in the show notes, sure. any links on, sure. you know, how retailers might think about discovery that's, you know, that's out yeah. there. Because I think that's an area of inspiration. It's It's greatly needed. And I yeah. can think of a, a lot of brands that the number one, one of the top things they're thinking about is how am I going to get trial in this new yeah. new world uh, and getting more innovative in terms of sampling. I mean, there's a lot of sampling happening now on the on the uh, drive uh, the um, out, outside pickup curbside pickup people dropping things in bags and stuff, you know, for brands. But that doesn't really aid the in-store discovery in the same way. And it's yep. just, uh, I, I personally haven't been in many retailers that have have that as a thoughtful program that the customer can see that as a, a reason. Costco and Sam's Club, you know, Sam's is doing a lot more than they are now, but Costco, you, it's kind of known for great discovery through sampling. And um, it's just one of those things I think that's I think out you, there. I think you'd be intrigued with, if, if we had enough time, I would take you through a series of case studies where we're doing that. Uh, I would say, admittedly, they're smaller chains because smaller chains are more desperate to win and more desperate to have uh, points they can win on other than price and variety. But we're, we're doing that a lot. I, I think the one common thing that comes through all grocery stores is, oh, it's going to increase our labor model. Or we're going to have to work harder. We're going to have to learn about food. <laughs> and this is the project we have no choice to avoid. If we want to stay up with the current customer, we're going to have to figure out how to work harder. And I can't tell you the number of chains I sit in where uh, an executive will put their hands in their head and say, we can't make a good slice of pizza. I literally had an executive tell me that, or we can't make a good uh, piece of chicken. And my first question is, do you really earn the business? I mean, do you deserve it? If you can't make it, why should customers buy your product if you Mm. can't make it? But then secondly is, I think the biggest issue is scale is that most of these chains have gotten too big without gotten without getting good on one thing. And so as we've examined that problem over the last 15 years, what we find is grocery stores have a habit of being good or I'd say mediocre at 50 things and not stellar in three to eight things. And so the thing we really focus on grocery stores is go, what are the three things or eight things that we're going to be better at than anybody to the point that the magazines will nominate us as the best pizza in town, or the customer, when we do surveys, will come back and go, 
you know, you can say what you want about their prices. That chicken's the best piece of chicken I've ever had. And we're getting that. We're getting yeah. that. Now, I, 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 love, I love what you're saying. Completely agree. I think my experience in the UK where because of the way that the geography is set up, the way stores are done and zoning, you know, you're going to have a Sainsbury, a Tesco, a Asda yeah. well, on the same car park. Yeah. And if you're not wow. competing on customer experience, you're going to you're going to have a real problem. And so that market pushed harder in that space, I think, than what I see sometimes in the U.S. Yeah, I think I mean, Europe just, just fascinates us in general because it's it's such a different market. And when I watch European grocery stores come to America, not all of them, they they struggle a bit, you know, mm -hmm. because we just have a different way of shopping. We require a lot more context in America than than European shoppers who have great bread and minimalist environments. But that's very hard to do here, although Lidl has been doing well here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but fresh and easy didn't do well no, with their no, attempt here. And uh, it was neither fresh or easy. So. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, I tell you what, uh, we're running out of time here, uh, Kelly. But I, I just think that uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Any final thoughts yeah. on uh, to particular retailers or brands to be thinking about as we uh, close this up? You know, I, I think it's just a super exciting time to see what's happening in, in grocery and food in general. And, and uh, there are people that worry about it dying. I've never seen so much uh, appetite for risk and experimentation. Nobody's trying to run the three-yard ball anymore. They're trying to throw 60-yard passes. And that's what's really exciting to me because we needed that. And it's not just coming from grocery. Everybody's trying to think about the stomach share. So we have convenience stores upgrading, restaurants thinking about, hey, what else can we sell? You, restaurants have done really well during COVID selling other items. We've, uh, we've seen a variety of other players, drugstores and other people trying to figure out this space. But I think, as we said earlier, you're going to see two extremes, right? You're going to see people just go for the warehouse commodity variety price approach, and you're going to see other people going for the uh, food is discovery, food with meaning side. Yeah. And uh, I think that's okay. I think that's good in yeah. this world. We, uh, yeah. I think we should have those choices. Yeah, and something we didn't talk about, uh, Kevin, was the uh, issue of a lot of these larger stores where the tenant spaces and such are going to have to involve a lot more foot drop fall and different environments to come together. But then when you start building out those platforms, how do you have a customer data strategy yeah. that lets you really understand what happened in the whole environment and trip. And yeah. in that area we haven't even touched on, but I think that'll have a, an important piece to solve, 100%. especially with GDPR and privacy. You can't really just share yeah. all that data in the same way. And so um, no matter where you turn, there's going to be some challenges. Every solution comes with a bunch of problems, right? So, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, but it takes society a while for they to kind of figure, you know, where they want to course correct themselves. But, right. um, you know, we're doing a number of food halls and people, people have been asking me, you know, because we have 10 different projects on the board right now. And people have been asking me, do I think restaurants are coming back or bars or pubs or all of bars, wine stations? We're still doing all of those and we're still building yeah. all of this. Now we're designing them with flexibility so they can quiet down and transform into something else. But I mean, our clients are spending millions of dollars betting all of that's coming back. And that's because they need it. That's yeah. it. They don't want to, they can't compete with the price leaders. Yeah. So, so there's yeah, a lot of experimentation the whole, there. 
Yeah, the whole the whole experience. Yeah, no, hundred hundred percent. So one last question. So what, what's your point of view? You do a lot of work with malls. Is the um, Mid American Mall concept is it dead or not dead? Uh, it's certainly in trouble. Um, the, you know, the, we use a word often, we talk about form and shape and our human body processes things by looking, we know what a gas station is, a convenience store is, a coffee shop by its form and shape. And when a form and shape becomes too predictable and boring, we, we tire of it. And the giant department store box, the anchors, all that mall has, uh, has kind of died. But what isn't dying and what's actually growing are villages. People want villages and towns and the subtle shift and framework between a mall and a village is not that hard to do. And so one whole side of our firm does tons of these projects. My partner heads that up, but we, we really don't need another mall, but we need a whole lot more villages and That's villages have a lot more service retail. They have banks, they have jobs, they have a living. A village is a different thing, but, um, and the last thing I'd say on the mall side is you're either going up in terms of your experience or you're going down, but you will never hold the middle. It just doesn't work. So you pick and, your you battle. And Steve, you and Steve Dennis, yeah. he just wrote the book, you know, yeah. Remarkable. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had about a podcast. He is so much into the big middle's dead. You've got to get yeah. out of the big middle. And It's been, yeah, it's a terrible place to be. And so upscale malls are doing good, but uh, I, I just don't understand why they keep building the the idea of mall i you know the clients i work for we strike it from the language no no mall words it's an urban place that is like a village or a town with yeah. a lot of different things i can get done and that's the way it used to be right yeah. for thousands of years we had great little towns yeah um, well these these structures these mammoth structures that are these contained buildings and malls it's it's kind of it's so artificial in terms yeah. of what we expect, that I guess it was only a matter of time before we say like this is it's like going to Vegas, right? And it's not real, and so it's material. It's materialism, and and uh, and that's what has been such a shift is that consumers today, particularly millennials, you know, they want to make a difference in the world, and they feel like if a place is just focused on vanity, that doesn't do well for them. But it was such a sign, and you know, the area you and I grew up in, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. I mean, Wall Street, yeah. all of that stuff was just, it was about us. And and that makes sense because the boomers came out of sure. a certain era and they wanted to live, but, but now it's not what can I do for myself, but what can I do for the world? And that sounds odd, but a barber shop or a local little uh, retail or a cafe, or even a local pub feels like it's part of a community. And that's well, what the millennials are seeking. And, and I guess, you know, I love our country, so I'm not putting our country down. But from living in Europe for the last four years, the concept of village is like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, right. And, and you're just flying over the UK or France or, you know, this the way the zoning has been handled is so different and than what you see flying over the U.S. And... I mean, uh, the weekends, we would never get our car out. We didn't need to get a car. We, know, yeah. we, we would walk to the barbershop. The butcher and the baker were all within, you know, walking distance of everything. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience to see that. Um, maybe that's kind of where you're going with the, the new version of a mall is we do. I do that's find right. that village concept is so fun and exciting. And it's just a more relaxed way to live. When we videotape customers, we work, there's a very famous district in California, Santa Monica called Third Street Promenade. 
Yeah. And they, they meander and mill. They don't have a plan. They are totally open to social encounters. They discover. But the second they get off that street and start walking down a normal street that's car dominated, they no longer discover. They walk with an intent and purpose and a, to get out of there. And, and the word I said earlier about corridors and hallways is the same with our cities. And if a city is designed like a corridor, which is literally what they call most the hub and spoke idea of a city, people don't behave very friendly. You'll literally see the whole attitude, eye movement, everything change. And we're constantly trying to figure that out. And we're, we're local, state and federal policy really mandated transportation. And, and I mean, I'm saying the obvious, but the car has been the most destructive force for us on a variety of levels. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the word that is the hardest word for people to get used to is densification is what we need to do. More denser, compact, 15-minute cities that allow you to get a whole lot done and not, not this, I'm going to go to Best Buy 45 minutes out of the city, right? We, we have to work on this aspect. Uh, I live in LA and we just got rated the worst pollution again. We were doing really well, but we've lost it again. And, you know, that affects whether you want to live here or not. And yeah. we just have to, and, and they fought off light rail and uh, train forever because people didn't want it running through their community or have those undesirables there. And thank gosh, we're winning that battle and making us less car dependent and I, you know, I, I love cars, but they destroy the fabric of pedestrianization. And you don't really even know a city if you don't smell it, if you don't get out and walk it. You, you don't really know it. No, I, and, I agree. And I, and I think that, you know, for I would encourage anyone that hasn't left the U.S. to go do some international travel. Yeah. You know, go to some of the cities in, in Europe. And they have all, all every country has their own challenges and problems. But but the pedestrian ability and the and the connection to local shopkeepers uh, and the humanity of all of that and then taking care of each other it, it, there's just a different level of that you get that you don't get when we're so spread out that it's so hard but I, i'm i'm with you and i wouldn't have felt it if i hadn't lived in it for three, yeah. four years and then feeling it and coming back here and i i love being back in in arkansas uh, and and sunny weather and and all the good things that the uk did not have but at the same time, I do miss the ability to just walk and, and, and connect into so many different things. And, and I think that's a, a, a city planning, country, you know, it's, it's a bigger issue of government and how we plan our cities. But uh, I'm glad that there's some pressure because you, you would know more than anyone from an, what's the vibe in architecture and where yep. is it going? And it sounds like that's uh, getting a lot more thought. Trying to course correct it. And, and there are a lot of generational uh, household makeups, people are getting married less, having kids less. So it, it's really changing. And if you look at the drivers of what humans want, w one of our greatest fears is to be lonely and not to find our quote magic other. And, you know, we used to meet our magic other in high school or church. That, that doesn't really happen anymore because of the way our lives work. And so people in their 30s, 40s and 50s are still needing to find ways to interact. And if, there, if COVID has done anything for us, it's really proven that there's no way we can have a life just in home. Um, yeah. we, we are, it, it cognitively impairs us and we need to go out and meet strangers and see people and become what we call a part of a temporary community. 
uh, just being on a high street is like being a part of a temporary community. And you can, you can find your distance. You can be a voyeur and watch that, or you can get right in the middle of it, but it makes you feel less lonely. And so there's a lot of issues where people say retail is dead and cities are dead. They're not. Um, Mm -hmm. People need the cul-de-sac neighborhood is literally the highest correlation of Prozac and antidepressants happen in cul-de-sac neighborhoods because there's not a sense of community. If somebody was to walk in a cul-de-sac neighborhood down Saga, we didn't know, uh, it gets the highest number of police calls. There's somebody strange in my community. You need to arrest them. And and this is what what is changing about us is younger generations are saying, look, I, I want to see the other person. Now we need this sense of safety yeah. And so certain places provide that. And that's not only physical safety, but social safety and psychological safety. But that's where you get the meandering and milling. When people meander and mill, they feel safe. Yeah. But when they don't feel safe, they walk very deliberately. And so it's exciting to see some of that changing. But, the, you know, these are all the battles that we always fight. But, uh, yeah, but I, I'm a, we do a lot of mixed use urban housing. Uh, we really we really help the what we call the public realm of those aspects and the retail and those have grocery stores in them and retail shops, which is a whole different uh, type of grocery store. But that when you buy a house in one of these places, I shouldn't say buy when you rent an apartment or condo in these places, are very expensive. A big part of your value proposition is what do I do here? What yeah. do I, you know, uh, not what do I just look at or how many rooms do I have, but what happens here? And they're like, oh, every Friday we have this. We have a band come. We have happy hour here. Th- these are becoming very big issues to consumers. And that market is booming right now. Oh, that's great. Just booming. Well, yeah. I also suggest from my own experience, get a dog. I mean, the, <laughs> the people you meet when you take and walk your dog, you know, if you don't have one, I mean, it's, it, and it's just, we've met so many fascinating people by just taking our dog for a walk. I'm talking in the UK because um, it's, yeah. it's, it creates social interaction. And it's so funny to watch people. You probably have already seen this in your studies, but you know, when you meet someone the other way and you're not really sure, everybody looks at the dogs, right? They're looking at the yeah. dog. Then if you think you might like him, you start looking up the leash and then eventually you make eye contact. <laughs> it's, uh... I love that looking up the leash. Well, we, we do a lot of pet stores. So we're, the, the, you know, what we really study in pet is the humanization and the personalization and the premiumization of pets as a level we never saw before. When I was a kid, you know, we, we never did any of these things, but now we treat these animals like they're humans and like they're our kids. And they become this great conversation starter. They, they, they're they icebreakers and that's what facilitates. And we generally need uh, something to break the ice and allow people to talk to each other. And, and they're doing that. And, in addition to working for pet stores, which uh, is a very premium business, um, my wife uh, has a fashion brand called Pajeri, Pajeri.com. I'll make a plug for her. That is Excellent. her state. Her statement is a uh, walk with quality. And yeah. uh, it's all about walking your dog. And, and she built the brand around social anxiety. She moved from yeah. New Zealand here. She didn't know anyone. I was traveling and working and she's like, what am I going to do? And she got a dog and she, her whole life changed because she met people and, and I uh, wasn't just changed kidding. it. I, I, yeah. I, I, I wasn't yeah. trying to be flippant or funny. I honestly do believe that. I, I, good on her. I mean, I, I, that is such a great way to break out. If you do live in a cul-de-sac, 
get yeah. a dog at least, right? I mean, yes, to create absolutely. some connection and humanity because it's it's such a magical thing that happens. Yeah, the studies say it reduces anxiety. I'm sure you've seen all those things, oh, but yeah. it's unbelievable what it does for our our calmness and our personality. And you know, <laughs> uh, my dog is my best therapist, so I can tell him anything, yeah. and he just. He seems to be okay with it. And yeah. Never never judges me. <laughs> Loves me all the same. Yeah, well, um, we, we ended up getting a dog, and we already had a dog that went over. She's 14. She's not doing well now. Oh, but, uh, I'm sorry. But we bought that. one in the, uh, got one in the UK, uh, Cockerdoodle. And, um, oh, wow. So just lovely, lovely dog. She's she's very British, though, so she's not used to this Arkansas. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> she holds her bowl with her pinky out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she's like, what did you do to me? We're like, we went to an oven. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a thing. Well, Kevin, I've so enjoyed this. And we're so many things we so can much. cover, but we'll come back and do some more at another time. But thank you for your so time. Great insights. Your program. Same Love here. It. You have fantastic and great ideas. And uh, I look forward to doing more with you. So thank you yeah, so thank much, you. Andy. Once again, I can't thank Kevin enough for sharing his progressive and innovative thoughts on retail and food strategy. If you haven't already, make sure you listen to part one of our conversation in the previous episode of It's a Customer's World.